0: Hey, print friends! Quick update before we start this episode. Since it was first published in July 2019, my guest has chosen the name Opal Deruvo. As you'll hear, they are referred to as their previous name in this recording. This has been left with the artist's consent. Okay, enjoy.
1: But yeah, that these are these are very real, um, very programmed ways that we're limiting the the number of images that that were, you know, the types of images that we're able to see. And so that visual artists have a way to kind of push back against that because we're, you know, our life is the images we make.
0: Print friends and welcome to the 18th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website featuring images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. Just a quick round of housekeeping before we jump in this week. I have a couple of exciting things on the horizon, and I don't want you to miss out on them. First, I'm getting tantalizingly close to reaching 15,000 followers on Instagram, at which point I'm gonna be doing another giveaway and this time it's a stunning etching by an as yet to be named but incredible tie print maker. You're not gonna to want to miss this, so make sure you're following the PCL Instagram if you're not already. Second, On the 31st of this month, it's July 2019 for anyone who's counting, the call for the Megalo International Print Prize is going to close. Now, I don't know if you know about this call for entries yet, but Megalo is in a great print studio in Canberra, Australia, and every year they host a print prize, for which first place gets... Drumroll... $12,000... There are also four-figure prizes for all other placements. I'll put a link in the show notes for how to enter. But prizes aside, just by getting accepted, you'll be exhibited among other incredible printmakers from around the world at their gallery. I gave a little tour of last year's exhibition over on Instagram, and it was a goddamn inspiration. Finally, huge thank you to all the Patreon supporters who help bring this show to you every two weeks honest to goodness, I couldn't do without you. You are the very best, my heroes, and thoughts of you are keeping me warm in these long, cold Sydney winters. So, as always, printmaking forever, shun the non-believers, join the party. Okay, print friends, do I have an episode for you. What you are about to treat your ears to is an excerpt from a five-hour conversation I had with my guest, Paul DeRuvo. Paul has an incredible story to tell about being introduced to the Center for Contemporary Printmaking at the tender age of 14, and how from there, they've developed their practice into a diverse and beautiful body of work, exploring critical queer moments with the reverence of an 18th century portrait. I don't even want to say more about it than that. You're just going to have to go on this ride yourself. So sit back, relax, and prepare to fall madly in love with Paul DeRuvo. Hey, Paul. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. Good to see you. Thanks for joining me. It's
1: great to see you. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I know. I feel like um, we have amazing things to chat about, and I'm really looking forward to it. But let's see, before we dive into all of the juicy questions, would you just introduce yourself for the audience?
1: Um, My name is Paul DeRuvo. Um, I'm a non-binary artist and printmaker um, working in Norwalk, Connecticut as a collaborative printer and studio manager at the Center for Contemporary Printmaking. The print shop that I work at, the Center for Contemporary Printmaking, is in my hometown, which led up to how, at 14, I walked into my first print shop, the CCP. My jaw dropped and I really fell in love with the environment. And I started as an apprentice there. So it's really the shop that I work at now is the first print studio I ever walked into.
0: So how did you come to even walk into the shop?
1: So I grew up pretty much in a family of artists. My mother's a preschool teacher, and my father was a darkroom photographer and a photography teacher. So I grew up around um, darkroom photography, and it had a real impact on my practice. There was just such an aesthetic to the work that he did in the, and, and the way that he taught the process, which was deeply connected as far as a you know a really alchemical craft, which he was an amazing instructor for. I'd always been making artwork, as so many of us had, but I I really struggled with translating things into two-dimension, so (laughs) I started um, drawing using wire and making sort of two-dimensional wire sculptures that I could manipulate by hand, and so it was a short jump from there to start thinking about um, brushing ink over the wire and then like oil-based ink and then running it through a cold mount press. That was a sort of spring-loaded, low-pressure printing press. And so I started using that to make these wire prints and also had heard about Degas' process for making reductive monotypes and tried to replicate that on dampened watercolor paper in my father's darkroom studio in our basement um, on a cold mount press, which to varying degrees of success. And then... At the time, I went to a school that was focused on Japanese studies, and my grandmother saw a listing in the paper for a show of woodcuts by an artist, Randy Bull, who was having a a retrospective. I thought it was just a gallery that I was walking into, but when I got there and started looking around, I realized that the Center for Contemporary Printmaking had 10 etching presses, mm. facilities for all of the traditional printmaking processes. And I just wanted to come back and I pretty much told them that if they didn't find something for me to do, I was just going to follow them around. So <laughs> if they, they could either give me a broom or I would just sort of come and walk around the studios. <laughs> and at the time, the master printer there um, was Anthony Kirk, who is a master printer and etcher who had worked with uh, Ken Tyler at Tyler Graphics. So he had, you know, 30, 40 years of experience by the time that I was there. And so I really got to see right away what level printmaking could be brought to. One of the things that I loved about it was seeing that there was a profession that, you know, printmaker had an ER at the end of it. It was something that you learned and you also could do. Mm -hmm. So I was always influenced by knowing that I wanted to learn craft and the technique of it. And it, and it meant that there was something that really left me with some creative freedom for the work that I wanted to make, mm-hmm. knowing that it wasn't about what I wanted to make, it was about how well I could make it mm-hmm. um, as far as the profession was concerned. So I applied to schools looking exclusively at printmaking programs and looking for the best set up sort of print studio that I could find. I applied with a portfolio that had, you know, Drypoint and mezzotint in it coming out of high school. Wow. Um, I had done etchings and.
0: Yeah. So, where did you end up going?
1: Ultimately, uh, Massachusetts College of Art had uh, one of the best print shops that I had seen. I loved that it was in uh, an old gymnasium with every technique, you know, adjacent to each other, which really lended itself to cross process work, which I was definitely interested in. So, mm-hmm. the main thing that coming from an internship apprentice um, position, gave me was I knew that I loved the work, Mm -hmm. that I knew that I loved the collaborating that the printer and artists were doing. Um, I loved the problem solving aspects of it. I loved that every day was different. Even, you know, even as an intern, I didn't know walking in what I was going to be doing one day to the next. But, you know, I approached everything um, trying to show that I could do more than that, so if it was sweeping, I would sweep every single corner and dust every baseboard, and you know i, I was just going to do that until someone told me not to because it was that was the kind of thoroughness that I was hoping you know that might take notice so
0: so you touched on it a little bit, but you um you have your own practice, but you also mm-hmm. are a collaborative printer as well. I'd love to hear you talk about that yeah. and specifically kind of about that balance because I feel like there's oh, yeah. I hear these discussions that some people are saying as a collaborative printer you don't need mm-hmm. to be an artist or i'm a collaborative yeah. printer i'm not an artist i'm more of a technician and what mm-hmm. where for you personally where does that kind of fit
1: so i've always put in my any of my my information about myself that i was pursuing a career as an artist and a collaborative printer those were never in conflict for mm-hmm. me but you know you you ask people sort of like thinking about their dream scenario as far as making their work some people really would love to be like in a cave, in a castle, whatever, (laughs) left alone with their work 90% of the time. um, And I was just never that person. The work that I make is so fueled by my relationships, my interactions with other people. So the environment of a print studio, the sort of collaborative um, space was deeply nourishing to my own practice. And I also always thought that you know, th- today, this is a problem I'm trying to solve for you. But tomorrow, it's going to be my problem. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can't work through this, for you, how am I going to work through this for my own work? And in some ways, we give ourselves so much more liberty with our own work, if we get three quarters of the way there, and then think, you know, this is a nightmare, let me just paste this on after, you know, we can find another solution. But when you work with an artist, the demands are are much higher, you know, you really, um you don't get to make the decision that maybe this is too hard, (laughs) you know, that's their decision. So I love that it really was more demanding of my craft as well. Having seen going into it that there was a whole art to it and a way of communicating about it. That was definitely very impactful, but the ways that it came into my um, education was in the form of, um, you know, taking on TA ships. I was always in the studio. I work on my own work only when it's really quiet late at night Mm -hmm. when no one's there. So It would mean that any of the hours I was putting in the studio, I kind of was half just focusing on what else was going on, Mm -hmm. easily distracted. Oh, yeah. Um, So if someone had an interesting problem that was happening or a litho emergency, (laughs) I was usually the one that was around um, and was very happy to um, uh, put off my own work for a little longer Mm -hmm. while I um, uh, took on some interesting problem for the next 2 hours that I probably should have been, you know, working on some drawing I was putting off. So those all sort of fed into my collaborative work. But there's um sort of in my whole career path and a project I'm still working on that was hugely influential was uh, an early collaboration with an artist Emily Lombardo. And I went to Mass Art across the street from Mass Art was the School of the Museum of Fine Arts. So Emily Lombardo was in the MFA program at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts. Um, but we actually met in the year I was had already been graduated. And mm-hmm. I was working at a cafe and she worked at the bar across the street. So naturally, we saw each other twice a day, right? of um,
0: course.
1: <laughs> before her shift. And after mine, um, we saw each other a lot. And it wasn't until, you know, I heard her having some challenges with the person that was assisting her as a printmaking helper. Um, that I was like, Emily, do you know what I do? <laughs> And she said, oh, I thought you were a photographer. I was like, no, Emily, I'm a printmaker. I've been doing this since I was 14. Like, what are you working on? Um, and what she was working on was um, a series called The Capriccios, which was a queer feminist take on Goya's Los Capricios. Started from the very beginning and doing all 80 of The Capricios. So she reimagined all of them and really extended the satire into a contemporary perspective. She was working on that for her thesis show and had made 40 plates and she was like, I can't print them all. I was like, this is the opposite problem of like every other printmaker. I was like, usually we're swimming in prints and not uh, making more plates than we can print. So I started working with her and within a year, uh, the Child's Gallery saw the project. uh, They're an old print dealer in Boston who was starting to show more um, contemporary work and was interested in publishing it. So, you know, I immediately thought there's only one place I could possibly conduct a project like that. You know, I couldn't really do that in a student shop. So I approached the CCP about bringing the project back home. Mm -hmm. So I moved back to Connecticut with 80 etching plates and started editioning them. And so We've worked sort of in sets since it takes so long to print one series of 80 plates. And they're very particular. Um, They have like a mirror finished bevel, um, rounded edge, and um, about a solid inch of border around the plate, which the artist wanted a very contemporary look to it. So they're printed with like a blind embossment. Around the edge of the etching, so each plate just has to be fastidiously wiped, and then the high the whites just polished, um, completely white with no plate tone. And there's text in the bottom, so you also can't just solvent right. the whole borders out. So, um, so they've always been a labor-intensive project, and so we've been working on it for for a while. But it's it was incredible. I mean, talk about your hundred thousand hours um, yeah. working. Um, it just yeah. meant right off the bat. I had seventeen hundred prints to make,
0: and it's ongoing. Did you say you're still in the it's, process? It's of it's it?
1: ongoing. Uh-huh. Yes, we're still we're still printing it. But we unveiled it at IFPDA Fair in twenty sixteen, I think, which was the election year because they're very political, and there's yeah. some fascinating plates in it, including you know Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And I was so aware as I was working at, on them that I was like. Oh, well, this history is still being written, you know, we're, we don't know the half of what these images are going to mean to people looking back, which, mm. you know, carries a little bit of of Goy's originals as well. There's some elements that are so timeless and other ones that are really kind of mystifying to us. Um, but there was always a consistent narrative, like the hobgoblins, like, you know, each character represented a class of society and had a lot of connotations. And while some of that's lost to us now, at least you know, to the average viewer, the elements of human nature are very apparent, um, and those took on a little bit of an ominous significance shortly after the election, as we sort of (laughs) saw what happened. But it was revealed right, it was unveiled right before it, and we were able to hang all 80 of them on one wall, which was the first time I ever saw that in front of faces. That must have
0: been incredible to see them all up like that.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing the disasters of war uh-huh. at the Yale University Art Gallery and at the time walking down the wall to the place that I had pre- fully additioned up to, you know, just looking down the wall to my left and my right and seeing how much, you know, how much was ahead of me and how much was behind me was certainly uh, a moment Getting, <laughs> But then we, we switched um, up how we were doing them. Initially, we were releasing them in volumes of 15 plates. And then we started to just produce sets of the entire edition, the entire 80, Mm -hmm. um, which was much more sort of how collecting institutions were interested in it. So we've already placed a couple of those, which is exciting. And um, one set was shown alongside Goya's entire Capriccios, another museum who had the entire set. So that was very, very very cool to see those um, installation shots of that as well. So that was my first contract job um, that I took on myself as the sole printer on. um, But it brought me back to CCP and it was in a Point of a lot big transition the master printer that I had worked under was no longer there sort of just as I was coming back and so there was a bit of a void as far as there's a lot of work to be done yeah. and so shortly after starting um uh, on the project part-time I moved to full-time and started on as studio manager and well I started on as first as the associate printer and then later took on the studio managing as well but it was a process of really sort of trial by fire um working with artists right out of school using every trick and favor I had to sort of (laughs) work my way through each project because there's such a gap between doing it for yourself and doing it for another artist. So uh, and, you know, at the time I graduated just before turning 21. So I was very young. So I was coming back. I was 22 and working with artists as a collaborating printer. And then I've still been doing that for the last five years. So yeah. Um, I have definitely see a lot of growth for myself in that time. And looking back, it's just so cool to see all the different projects that's come through the door in that time.
0: Yeah, what an incredible experience to just kind of... You got thrown in the deep end, but it was like yeah. the pool that you'd practiced in.
1: And a yeah. really unique um, environment. The Center for Contemporary Printmaking is a arts nonprofit. So we have a print gallery... Uh, artist members who rent studio time. We have workshops, and we also have contract printing and collaborative bookings. Um, so I'm one of uh, two full-time, three printers total, with Chris Shore and Megan Morrow are my two coworkers there. Mm. So, you know, you're not alone in it, but we're also a, um, in part an educational facility, so there's a di- sort of different um, flavor to some of the work that we do since it's not solely publishing production oriented. Mm -hmm. Uh, The studios are shared with artist members. So it's always maintaining kind of an educational role. Um, So even while we're working on other projects, people are coming through the door just to see the galleries, to look at the studios. They might be working in the spaces. They might be working on their own projects. There's a lot of balls in the air when you're working on a project. It's not one of those sort of sterile print shops where you're able to close the door and, you know, work on just a single project for several weeks at a time, and then that's over.
0: I feel like that's a, a wonderful introduction and overview for your collaborative yeah. practice. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk to you about your personal practice as well.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, my, my technique-wise, my two loves have mostly been etching and talio and then litho have been equally engaging. My personal work has definitely been heavily influenced from growing up with a photographer in the family, certain elements of just the aesthetic, the placement on the page. My father shot black and white square photograph. He sanded out the edge of the negative carrier, so there was always a black line around it. There was always, you know, a very formal look to them. And so my work, I think, really took on that in some formal elements of drawing, working with some color, but predominantly in black and white, starting with this observational eye that I think I learned from photography. I still use um, my iPhone camera as my sort of visual Mm. sketchbook. Mm -hmm. And I'm constantly photographing. I have a 80 plus thousand photo Mm. archive that covers the last decade. And then my work generally is created drawing observationally from those photographs the photography lens and honesty, I've always found that there's um, someone shows a side of themselves in a sort of a 16th of a second, Mm. that in a longer setting, there's so much more ability to kind of control certain aspects of how you look. And it's impossible to not influence what's happening if you're there drawing it from life, that becomes this editing process where What you're looking at never existed. There was no point in time when that was, when every element lined up just the way it is. Maybe it's Uh done over three days. Maybe, you know, model's always moving. You're making constant decisions from observation, but with this eye of an editor. Using photography, for me, was about capturing, I think it's Roy DeCarava that talked about the decisive moment. And, you know, that that there's... um, there's a split second that if you're looking for it, if you stay sensitive and open, there's these really honest moments around you all the time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just about making yourself a little bit invisible and sensitive as an observer to not overpower that. Um, and there's something about using even an informal camera like a phone mm-hmm. that doesn't interrupt things as much. And maybe it's terrible that people are so used to, to um you know, seeing me holding my phone. But um, so that that archive forms the sketchbook in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. which I pore over and look and sort of, I know when an image strikes me. Um, and a lot of times it's the sense that it already feels like my work. It feels like I've already made it. And I go, oh, this is, you know, either I have that experience in the moment or or looking at the photograph and going, oh, this, this is the world that I live in. This is the world that I'm trying to capture. And... That has so much to do with sort of elevating these moments of daily life, which I think are imbued with something really powerful, very human, that something very sensitive about something that's so familiar that they're not, you know, they're they're mundane in some way, Mm -hmm. but they're also very relatable and they're honest. And, you know, I have a lot of devotion for my subjects. And I try and sort of capture that. And so each step of the process of taking a photograph and moving from a photograph to a preparatory drawing that I usually do on um, a mylar that I can keep erasing and things mm-hmm. like that and flip back and forth and keep looking at. So through a careful preparatory drawing and then the transferring to the plate and then the working on the plate and printing it, that each step of this. I really approach in a devotional manner where the labor that I'm putting into it, I hope creates a sensitivity for the subject that maybe the viewer would have, maybe the viewer wouldn't, but it changes how you look at it mm-hmm. from if it were just sort of something immediate, if it was presented as a photograph, it, if it was just an image that you encountered, you know, I think sometimes they, you would look right past them. But when you see what someone invested in them to bring this you know, in front mm-hmm. of you, um, it changes how you approach it.
0: No, I think that's that's huge. Yeah, that 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 people do instinctually. I think even if they don't fully understand it, um, get the aura of something that's been treated with reverence. And the way mm-hmm. that a snapshot on a phone, even if it's you know a, a interesting image, yeah. we're so used to seeing it. We're so image saturated with even candid moments, because photography is so omnipresent, that transferring that with purpose to to a plate, to paper, really, I think, is part of what gives your work the the aura that it has.
1: And the next step of that was, you know, being able to do that. So I always felt very connected to representational work and the history um, of that as a queer person, as a queer artist, and typically... Um, depicting, you know, my intimate relationships and the closeness to the subject matter that I have, I needed to sort of be able to approach that. And I wanted to elevate that. I wanted to see it in the way that you got to see a 17th century aristocrat. I wanted to see that craft applied to the subject, I had to have access to it. I, I felt like there was I was some, somehow left out a little bit from um, work which in presenting itself visually as anti-establishment really also rejected any uh, elements that were sort of academic as well. Mm. That sort of to give a raw credit to the, you know, to the authenticity of the work, they did that through just expressing it with the tools that, you know, someone might have. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that but I wasn't seeing the full range in that. So work that was political, work that was um, critical, relied so much on um, expediency and the ability of someone coming to it. And then there was this work that was reserved for you know, people with access to training and academic background, and they got to be de- depicted in one way. And sort of everyone else had these other options, but not, not the same one. And so that felt imbalanced to me. And it was something that I was trying to sort of like address in my work to get to see the subjects that I wanted to depict the moments from my life approached with that same reverence. So after studying at Massachusetts College of Art, I actually took six months of drawing instruction at the Boston Realist Academy. That's like a French academic Hmm. um, drawing school and learned that there's, you know a whole craft and I, I kind of grew up hearing that anyone could learn to draw, but the operative word there is learn
0: Yeah, you
1: actually have to be taught that <laughs> um, And seeing a school devoted just to teaching that, you know I realized it was the most practical things that I never thought to ask like, you know I walked in and I saw how they sharpened their pencils, which is like six inches of lead mm. coming out of a wooden pencil and then you sharpened the lead so, you could always make a mark that you, you're no mark you ever made would ever like you couldn't erase the marks you build in strength of mark making as you build in confidence with where something is. Yeah. So, you start really spidery and very, very light, and you control your hand through drawing with a six inch lead pencil, which the first couple times you break one and you're just like, well, shit. And you'd be sitting in the drawing, in the, you know, uh, figure drawing class, and you just hear this like, Pin drop clink noise. Oh no, (laughs) someone broke a lead. Um, And um, realizing the speed also is so different coming out of school where you're always on a deadline of, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe two weeks is the most you have for a project. And in my first six months there, you know, I did a 14 week figure pose and I was coming once a week and half the people there came two or three times a week to the same pose, you know. Yeah. So, realizing that that drawing that I thought someone was just so good that they made this angelic drawing took an amount of work that I just hadn't conceived of mm-hmm. to put into it and realizing that that was sometimes what it took. And in time that might become quicker, but your first couple Barg drawings, you're copying drawings of um, usually marble casts. So you start out copying a two dimensional form and in the drawing Academy, all of the beginning of it is you know learning drawing skills, which form the basis of painting. But for a printmaker, it was kind of amazing because I got to t- absorb all of that. And you know I wasn't really interested in the indirect oil painting. Uh-huh. I kind of took that process and that sense of visual analysis that I had learned and I just added it to the years that I was continuing to work representationally, even though that wasn't much of what was going on at the mm-hmm. time in the program.
0: You know hearing you say that it kind of makes from what i've seen of your work kind of click and elements of it that i think i've engaged with kind of intuitively it's Mm -hmm. sort of like okay that's why because there is there's just this incredible kind of delicate tenderness in some of the images that you make of these little bit fleeting or passing moments and it does have that elevating quality to it Mm -hmm. and there's one that that I was thinking of particularly that I think encompasses a lot of what you were speaking of, which came to mind which is your piece that's called ritual
1: absolutely absolutely. yeah do you want to
0: talk to that piece because I feel like it's a a good example of all of these elements coming together yeah
1: no I think that 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 was a really um, significant piece it was the first that I finished out of school. I started working on it the last summer studio that I rented in Boston and then coming back to CCP to finish it. And the image is one that actually my boyfriend had taken, um, which was a little bit of a departure because I was in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it ticked all the boxes of the second that I saw it. I was like, oh, this is part of my work. This looks already like it belongs in the body of work I've been making. And So responding to it right away sort of put it in that place. And it's one that I'm putting my lipstick on one of my best friends. We were just getting dressed to go out and, you know, he's wearing my silk blouse. And I wear lipstick every day. And it was something that really, you know, talking about things that clicked for me, it was when I put it on for the first time, it clicked. The first time that I put on a shade of lipstick, you know, that was like a classic, like red and put on and I walked out and I just like saw the impact that it had and I went this is this symbolizes something that made me feel really really seen mm. um in a way that just sort of waking up unadorned in any way um didn't necessarily feel as as much as me as I did presenting more femme and that's mm-hmm. something that's sort of critical to that identity that this is a chosen element that it's not the sort of um obligatory aspects of uh, of femininity that you're sort of pushed into but something that you know you really Uh, make a conscious choice towards and so it's significant for me on that level and then in this moment so getting back to the peace ritual in this moment before we were going out asked me to do his lipstick and he just like floated (laughs) down onto one knee in this like completely (laughs) elegant angelic gesture looking up at me and my face is turned down and the light's coming from behind me so it's shadowed in this sort of like dark figure where I'm bestowing that onto Mm -hmm. him and in this moment that really summed up so much about like queerness in the community and like these aspects that are so important to us and seeing it seeing my profile it touched on all of these things you know my mother's family's Jewish you know there's like there's my full profile and it just felt like this Mm -hmm. very religious sensibility to it but was this sort of like queer baptismal moment and so uh so that image really struck me and then um I worked on it Um, It's a sort of fairly large-ish format, like 17 by 26 inch copper plate. Worked on it over, you know, at least a dozen proofs and translating this type of drawing that I was learning in the same steps that I had gone through of identifying the shadow line, suggesting it through the spit bite, and then building uh, darker tones on and using China pencil and dry point and different types of stop out and things like that to build up the image. And then sort of finally getting it to the place where it felt like it, it sort of uh, carried all of that. But it was, it's been, it been a great piece to have because it sort of crammed a lot of that yeah. into it.
0: It's so well-named, too, because that kind of passing of secret knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, the secret mm-hmm. yeah. feminine knowledge, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's so ancient. It's in, it's yeah, in human absolutely. DNA so far back. And it also is such a deep sort of bonding, I didn't really grow up with any particularly feminine female friends like I didn't really have that basically yeah yeah, and when I come across it every now and then in my adult life I'm so touched by it that it really it's so moving like I just was like at a at a wedding a few weeks ago and I didn't know anyone besides the bride and I was I was an attendant and I hadn't painted my toenails and I was wearing open toed mm-hmm. shoes and I yeah. asked, you know, does anyone have any nail polish? And someone yeah. was like, Oh, I have some and I was like, Okay, great, thanks. And I went to take it from her and she just was like, Oh, I'll put it on you.
1: Yeah. And I was like, Yeah
0: Are yeah. we best friends now? You know. Like and you
1: are and you are in that moment, like, you know, they could be a complete stranger. Yeah. And there's so much and I've seen how much it's changed through these years, you know, my identity has also evolved in how I think of it and how I understand that and those elements of my presentation became more and more crucial to who I was in a way that I, in the beginning, just viewed it as sort of broadening the scope of masculinity. And then Mm -hmm. in time, while that was an important conversation for me to have, and I think that there was something significant about that, but in time that felt less and less accurate and less and less honest because it didn't seem, it wasn't like a political statement. It was like, I mean, it was, but I wouldn't stop doing it if the politics changed, you know. Yeah. I could be somewhere completely different and that might not be important at all or, you know, sort of that same question. You're like, oh, if you're the last person or if like if tomorrow you woke up and you had to get dressed for the next eternity, uh-huh. like what would you put on? And there was yeah. no sense that I'd be like, oh, if I have to wear this forever, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look like myself. You know, this was like completely totally beyond skin deep. Um, yeah. And so that really changed how I thought about my own gender to sort of um, just recently changing how I name that and um, understanding that as a non-binary experience and um, and p- an aspect of a trans identity that, you know, is really important to me. But it's so layered with what you're talking about because it's I started to see how much my presence shifted and how people engaged with me, mm-hmm. um, this sort of sisterhood that, even the piece is about because um, it was very funny just being two visibly queer people, people would think that they understood that we were together. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and the response was always like, no, 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 Webster's my sister. Like, <laughs> these are like, this is not the relationship. And um, sometimes from the outside, people just really had no yeah. um, context mm-hmm. for seeing that, to see that bond and the power that that had as to people sort of embracing something feminine about them. Um, And then in the world at large, when I have that moment with someone and you just know that like you're sharing this moment of sisterhood with someone who in that moment, you know, you would do anything for them. You know that if they were in trouble, if they needed something, you would follow them home. You would walk them somewhere. Like if they feel like they could trust you and show you that, that Mm -hmm. like, that's so powerful. That's this. And it was a world. It was a total different world that when I felt like. I had access to that. I was really privileged. I felt like um, I was being let into something.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there's such a an interesting and, you know, fluid space between this, like, sort of gender as performance, right? So this mm, idea of, yeah. like, the other and how do I want to be perceived? And then that idea, I love what you said, that, like, you know, if if, if you were dressing this way for eternity or if you were the last human being on Earth. Yeah. You know, if no one's seeing this, this red (laughs) lipstick or this hair or whatever it is besides you. And I think that a lot of people get kind of tripped up in that and like in the Mm -hmm. weeds in it in a Mm -hmm. way that is just not necessary because it is Mm -hmm. so much more in a gray area you know, that, that it doesn't, it can be, you know, it can be, I choose to present this way for me and for you, you know, and I can, and it doesn't need to, to have this kind of distinction. Um, And there's definitely
1: a trap of authenticity in that where like, you're like, oh, if it's not, if you wouldn't do this every day forever, then it's not, then it's not you. And the reality is, no, we absolutely live in a very complicated world. Yeah. And you know, I feel deeply privileged that, like, I'm in a space and have a sense of safety in my daily life that I can mm-hmm. move through the world this way. But, you know, every other headline and, you know, looking at the work um, shared by other femmes, specifically non-binary femme people of color and trans women presenting on the, along the same spectrum, you know, absolutely in a similar way, but experiencing absolute violence every day for that yeah. and either choosing to go out this way is... Um, coming at a great cost to their um safety and well being. So, you know, it's never to 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 make it about like, oh, this like authenticity test of doing it every day or something like that. And that um comes up a lot with like visibility and things like that, where you're like, well, this it's this double edged sword where, you know, you're more visible, but that can be a target. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, I also don't shy away from it at all that my experience of it has been so different and it's really given me, you know, a lens to view that privilege because it, it isn't, I see reflected constantly that I have experiences that are very different from, Mm -hmm. from other people in a similar, um, sharing a similar experience. And so, um, you know, looking to make space for both of those and hoping that, you know, in time, the conversation that I can have through my work and the platform that it can create can continue to work on those sort of topics, even while at times there's always that risk of being like well do you make it too subtle do you make it too on the nose Mm, do you mm -hmm. um you know do you step outside your experience and risk it feeling inauthentic or do you make work only within your experience and then are you addressing everything that you'd hope to in your work and so um I've definitely shifted towards just at least an understanding of like it as a body of work as um the meaning of each image is sequential and narrative and, and builds over time so that they're not in isolation and that's how we consume images now right. like you're saying we're super saturated with them so someone can see my entire body of work and you know not each image uh, needs to go out there to ta- try and tackle you know um, every every challenge or every identity or anyone who might share this but I hope that being honest and authentic in sharing what my experiences are that people who have similar ones or don't, but find that they're surprised at how much they share in that, is something yeah. that sort of um, has been important to me.
0: That's significant when any work I think is being made about, you know, anyone outside of, you know, the human gold standard of the straight white yeah. male, like yeah. straight white yeah. right, cis male, right? Is yeah. um is that it? I think the work often is and again i think this is something that gets lost a little bit is that it can be about the inherent otherness at the same time and, it is about the inherent humanness and yeah, yeah. um you know so it, it's 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 i'm doing this this ritual let's say that yeah. you are gonna see you're gonna see this in your own way you know and maybe you're you're gonna say yeah. oh like I see my wife and daughter doing that. Or you're going to say like, oh, I, you know, I do that with my sister. Yeah. But you're also good. But it also can be a statement of this is who I am, you know, as the artist saying, but this is also how I exist as well, which is different from you, but also the same. And that's part of what makes, I think, work about identities um, really uniquely beautiful is because they can exist in that space.
1: And something that I've definitely looked to share, and at least sort of um, to be generous in my own experience with, is that um, uh, early in my work, some of the images that I was responding to had a lot to do with watching um, uh, one partner um, struggle through his coming out process, his accessing transition-related services, and uh, presenting in the way that he needed to be seen in the world. But what I kept finding over and over again is that the the steps taken were so common and you had i think mentioned um the performative aspects of gender earlier that what i saw over and over again um and i i focused on in my sort of earlier work were uh, moments like haircuts like there's a piece buzzing that's a 30 by 40 silk aquatint so it's a fairly large print and the process gives it a sort of really deep velvety black Um, but the image is of uh, my partner shaving his head in the bathroom sink which got at so many little moments in it, because on one hand, we make a lot of decisions every day about, you know, our hair, our presentation, Mm -hmm. every time we get a haircut, you know, such an important aspect of our identity that we make a decision on constantly and to either maintain or sort of reaffirm or change. And also frequently that's accessed in really gendered ways um, where, you know, when I had a short haircut trying to convince uh, the hairdressers to leave the little sort of pixie oh. length um, bits above my ear, which they would just cut off over and over again. They yeah. just, you know, it didn't matter what I'd said. They sort of just snipped them off because that was not the haircut that I was uh, supposed to be getting. Right. So um, uh, these little gendered aspects would come out over and over again. The barbershop, you know, being a very male dominated space. And so um, it was a challenge, you know, a challenging um, environment to sort of access something that you need on it every, you know, week or two. So, um, but, and I don't cut hair and all I would end up doing in these moments is photographing kind of powerless to help, but also as an observer or a voyeur and watching these sort of contortions that he would go through to shave the back of his head in a mirror, (laughs) um, uh, which were always just like, you know, fascinating for me on a formal figurative, um, uh, basis, but also that they're critical moments of identity creation, um, And also the ones that were so relatable. So there's that one. There's another one um, where he's picking his clothes out in the morning. And I just like was always waking up in bed and kind of like staring dreamily up at him backlit, picking (laughs) Mm -hmm. out his clothes. Um, But being like, this is something everyone does. This isn't, you know, I'm not sharing something that's, you know, so different. That's about, you know, only other trans people um, have in common, but something that everybody is going through with their gender, but they are allowed to view it as something invisible or something rote. And sort of prescribe that queer people don't have that roadmap for. So everything's intentional, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, how many partners you have, uh, what you call them, who you're committed to, in what ways, how you look, how you present yourself—all of these are things that over and over again, you know, we don't have a roadmap for. So we're kind of making up as we go. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And I wonder if, if if that kind of ties back into the the question we were fooling around with a little bit earlier before we started recording about communication in queer communities Mm, and how there is a shared language Mm -hmm. that you know at at least I recognize you know across the states it is very self-observant and Mm -hmm. understanding and and maybe because as you say there's not a roadmap like you don't you don't grow up seeing movies you know, ev- like every yeah. single movie ever made, which is about two straight people getting together. Like yeah, you, you, don't yeah, have anything. Yeah, yeah. Like you don't have like no. the culture. It's not there. And so, so maybe that's that's part of like that communication is is because without a roadmap, the need to find your way forward is so inherent and important. And the only access is other queer people because you can't yeah. you can't yeah. you don't have a playbook. You know, yeah, yeah. something like that
1: even you're talking about the communication and and the language, you know, each element of that is also deliberate um, and something that, you know, often is fought for um, in different ways. So I think there's a lot of awareness of that and also awareness, especially in terms of communication and then visual culture that's related to that. It's steeped in its own reservoir of sort of um, artists working and sharing work on the margins and i think that photography was also sort of instrumental because i saw Mm. more confessional ways of um making images that were related to sort of like nan golden and mark morris Rowe having more connection in some ways to my process and the ways that i make images than say another studio artist um or like a lucian freud or something like that even like maybe they're like getting at something that's kind of raw kind of honest but in very, very different ways. And that ability to capture something on the fly and something fleeting um, has a lot to do, I think, with this intimacy and codedness. And there's not really a lot of promise that you're like always, you know, even like, let's say you meet out one night that if you met the next day that you'd be looking the same way that you would necessarily uh, be in the same space of this moment, this exchange that's so, you know, important but also a little bit fleeting and a little bit fraught maybe um so um so i think that that way of making images and communicating visually through partially coded partially overt ways is something that is important and that i'm trying to you know not certainly not always succeeding but looking to like give something to that there's parts of my work that are overt and there's parts that are just more subtle that, that maybe have a special significance to another queer viewer, but that there's a feeling that supersedes that so that, you know, people are able to connect for that split second with desire, with intimacy, with um, longing before they ever connect another element of it, because they're having that experience with the subject, you know, Mm -hmm. not what I'm thinking about necessarily who it is, but they have their own narrative. But um, the the fineness, the detail of of that line work, you're able to sort of convey, communicates that it's a very intuitive line yeah. that it sort of follows um, that people can absorb and read.
0: In a way, the more finely rendered the actual bodies are, almost the more universal they become, because mm-hmm. when you see you're going to have an intuitive reaction just from seeing something that's very, you know, just the shape, the, um, the gesture, the body language that's going on before you start to kind of decode the social cues that might then, that the, then may allow you to fix identity to the figures. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I had some really interesting responses. Um, I mean, there's so much to cover, but um, uh, I was doing a residence <laughs> in Germany um, uh, near the Swiss-Austrian border in a town called Siegmaringen And uh, I was staying there, and one of, one of the pieces, I made this monotype um, uh, of my, my partner Enoch, who's a performance artist, and their body is very much a part of their work and their narrative and their sort of artistic presence. When they had uh, top surgery, they didn't have a nipple reconstruction in the process, so they just have two scars mm. that run parallel across their chest. And what people attach to that, because there's several pieces that those scars are visible and, again, um, I talk a lot in their own um, thinking and writing about their own work, um, about healing and the way that a scar is representative of so much. So that type of surgery which i never actually i had seen so few that i didn't actually realize that um often it looks like a mastectomy scar from cancer Mm -hmm. and so sometimes people were looking at these images and they were thinking you know maybe this was my mother or something like Mm -hmm. that um which really made no sense in the context (laughs) right but at the same time but i had no problem with because i was like wow i haven't if i don't know that that looks like a mastectomy scar then why haven't i seen more mastectomy scars Mm -hmm in the same way that this person, of course they wouldn't necessarily know inherently that this is a specific decision that um, uh, my partner made when they were having their surgery, something that was so um, visual and significant, um, uh, but sort of connected across very different identities, yeah. um, but on a very human physical body in a, in, a, in a way that related so much to the body um, yeah. and you know human processes of healing and things like that.
0: And again, that identity in the way we 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 attribute that you know yeah what is male what is female and all of that I mean and yeah yeah and that um that's an interesting I think there'd be an interesting exploration there of kind of what what exists in that space where two of like having the choice versus not having the choice right because that's a huge it's a huge difference (laughs) yeah Um, yeah but ending up
1: necessary for survival in their own way exactly Um, yeah so and that that the you know in the process of healing a scar it's like you know deeply related to the sort of trauma associated with it and then Mm -hmm. a really powerful process of you know stitching someone back together um you know mentally emotionally physically um and and healing through that so um I think that that's another narrative that that I sort of hope comes into the work, even though if you asked someone to necessarily pull all of that out of it, I don't know that they would have that, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't change how we respond when we see something really physical like that, you know?
0: Yeah. And that, that human response, you know, whether it's like empathy or wanting to care, or maybe, you know, um, I think people sometimes have like a natural inborn that kind of like pull back. Almost fear well, sometimes of like what happened well, your to you? Mirror, and, you know? and and
1: also that that mirror neuron response that's mm-hmm. actually producing an echo of that you yeah. know it shoots down your leg, you see that, and you you know and it gives you a jolt that um so much of sort of like a lot of human empathy is built on
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that ability of our brains that they've evolved the ability to see something that someone else is experiencing and experience a physical mimicry of it and understand something about what would happen because you know it'd be impossible to learn you know if you had to touch the same stove that you just watched someone burn themselves on to like know why they're yelling Mm -hmm. um you know you'd burn yourself a lot more
0: yeah and then all of those sort of I think social questions that's like you know you know why didn't you know why weren't you as familiar with a mastectomy scar mastectomies are so common, yeah. right? And yeah. why isn't this woman familiar with a top surgery scar? Top yeah. surgeries are yeah. so common, you know. Yeah. But yeah. again, it's it has to do with what we see, the communities we're in, what we associate yeah. being yeah. appropriate to show, you know? Yeah. It's all really interesting.
1: But I've always driven towards anytime I saw an image that I'd created or that was like sort of, you know, some moment when I got the sense that I was like, I don't think I've seen this before. I haven't seen this image before and you know, you go, we've got millennia of like you know all all, the entire like human history of like image making we have such a visual saturation of digital culture now so any image that I haven't seen I'm like oh there's a reason there's a there's a social pressure for this image to not come across my gaze whether Mm -hmm. it exists and I haven't seen it it doesn't exist which is probably rare but more often it's just that this is not being sort of allowed into public space and even, you know, down to the Facebook algorithms censoring right. some binary gendered sense of what is a, you know, female presenting nipple, right. um, <laughs> is, which is an absurd term to begin with. Yeah. It's a nipple. It doesn't have a gender identity, but yeah, that these are, these are very real um, very programmed ways that we're limiting the, the number of images that, that we're, you know, the types of images that we're able to see. And so that visual artists have a way to kind of push back against that because we're, you know, our life is the images we make.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and visual artists are the creators of visual culture. You know, kind of going back to this idea of what we're sort of allowed to see and what we're not, or what we're shown and what we're not. One of the things that I think about when I look at your work is this idea of like tenderness as Mm. protest Mm. in its own way. Because it's so against the masculine narrative, you know, yeah. which is the narrative that we get. <laughs> and and that to show vulnerability, to show intimacy is in and of itself an act of resistance to what we're fed we're supposed to value which is strength independence uh you know knock down you knocking each other down competition uh, all of those um toxic masculinity capitalistic values that is what we're born into so i guess I wonder if you ever think about your work in those terms or if you have just kind of thoughts in general of that idea of resisting through gentleness or tenderness. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, I think that really pretty much sums up what I try and do with my artwork in general. I mean, the the there's something that I wrote for my artist statement and the first line of it, which I sort of used a lot to try and sum up some ideas about that, just starts that within the defiant halo of an embrace, there exists a tenderness so powerful it overwhelms the coded markers of otherness around us. And the idea really sitting right in there about using that and really feeling like, again, like what I talked about, like what I have to bring, like, you know, the air sign thing Um, I don't like don't bring the real fiery energy to the work that I do but it doesn't mean any less to me and I think that honestly there's so much more strength that sits underneath that and you find that all around you you find that in mothership in the way that we're talking about that people protect each other that they like work through just some of the most difficult things imaginable with so much care with so much tenderness and the people that you kind of come to in your life that you think of as the strongest of the ones that have really been able to do all that and on top of it not become bitter where that which that seems like so much and then when you encounter bitterness you go oh this is also an expression of really having been through something and being really vulnerable like you know I see it in that bitterness as well so it's not that that's like oh that's a sign of weakness but it's just that like you see that this is something fragile and worth protecting and that there's not that much more, Mm -hmm. you know, I would hope to do. Um, But it's also funny in the sort of way that you um, just framed it um, in a very literal way. I had the wonderful opportunity just last weekend to lead a workshop at the Goethe Institute, um, which is a German language bridge Mm -hmm. um, in New York city, focused on sort of teaching um, language to people who might one day pursue citizenship or something like that. But they had an exhibition curated by the Schule Museum, one of only a couple of um, museums in the whole world solely dedicated to the art and history of LGBT people. And they have a whole archive of that um, in Germany. So on behalf of Stonewall 50, the 50th anniversary of Mm -hmm. the Stonewall uprising, um, which is happening, you know, right now this month is Pride Month. um, Mm -hmm. And it's the 50th uh, anniversary of that. I was asked to be one of You know, two artists who uh, presented a youth workshop to students to try and bring that narrative around and update it because this the the exhibition is going to travel all over the world from like literally Dubai to Helsinki and like very different cultural contexts to try and explain the history of the LGBT movement, especially in America, and as told through this German visual culture that was curated for the show. And we ended up approaching it via collage and allowed the students to take these copies of the work and just cut them up and recontextualize them into their own work. And then I introduced like, using Rubolith as an overlay film and citrus olive transfers and some other processes that sort of come from a printmaking uh, perspective. But the work that I made while I was in the workshop with them to talk about you know, what perspective I brought to it ended up taking all of the sign, the pieces where people were holding protest signs, which were also in German that I don't read, mm-hmm. um, and replacing the, the image in the sign with um, uh, the moments in which there were queer people touching oh,
0: from yeah. the other
1: artworks. And so it was just, you know, um, maybe a much more literal version of it that I wouldn't have made if I wasn't, you know, Doing collage with a, a group of high schoolers, but it was also it was also sweet to just sort of think about um, uh, this visual narrative of what I'm kind of like uh, trying to stamp my feet about um, in my work, which is just that intimacy is political. That that personal that sharing our yeah. personal lives is political, and that there's never going to be a point where talking about those stories is going to get less necessary because whether or not the context that it's in changes so much over time and you see that in the in the work that was presented and when I did the residence in Germany I was asked a lot about my identity as a Jewish person hmm. which growing up in the northeast is like part of it I'm um, yeah. my you know my grandmother survived the holocaust and so um, it's been a part of my identity for a long time but does it affect me on a daily basis not at all in the way that you know, being a visibly queer person, it influences every sort of interaction that I have. Um, And so I was going to Germany and talking to people who had never met a Jewish person because it's so isolated in the South there and there's so few people that came back, but conveying a narrative that had to do with my experience as a queer person in America, but but also identified a, a relationship between them. And another piece that I shared for the for the youth workshop involved being situated in a in a room in the artist in residence that was um, a converted you know it was a beautiful old cedar room but it had once been army barracks and it was two mm. weeks into the residence that I looked above my bed and saw that in the old beam mm. there was still a swastika carved into it oh. and it was the first time I was just so struck by seeing this original record that had nothing to do with you know some little shit teenagers, but knowing that this was, you know, in the heart of Nazi territory in Germany was so different and knowing immediately that I wanted to do something about it. But I also felt such an urge to document it and sort of, you know, for there to be a process around it existing. And so I ended up making this piece that was made up of seven long pink strips of paper that had like a frottage, or rubbing of the swastika on mm-hmm. it. And each rubbing i sanded you know 50 strokes of of sandpaper and slowly the swastika disappears Mm -hmm. and my initial gut had been i wanted to just like carve a triangle into it so badly (laughs) but i didn't want to like make the symbols sharing a like a equivalency that like you know now for the next hundred years whatever there as long as this building's here that like that exists but I was so much more struck by the ability of one symbol to erase another and yeah. to like rewrite that narrative. So the last panel of it is just a small um, upside-down triangle of the black sandpaper um, mm-hmm. that's still embedded with the sawdust from the sanding. Oh, okay, um, yeah. Stuck on it, and it was sort of um, uh, one, it carries with it, you know, the physical mm-hmm. residue of it, and two really spoke to the ability of, you know, symbols to erase and change and by, you know, this delicate, slow process just erode um, a really hateful, you know, history mm-hmm. um, embedded in a visual culture. Um, so there was something that I got to bring and physically show the students, collage workshop where we were talking about a lot of um, symbolism and then also had as part of the culmination of my residency um there to talk about, you know, overlapping identities and, uh, you know, have some sort of accountability um, process for that as well.
0: Yeah. And just that act of like the 50 strokes of the sandpaper, like is so gentle. Well, you will have to keep all of us up to date on what you're doing. Where can people find you and follow you and learn, learn more about your work?
1: So my Instagram is at SayYouDo, which is S-A-Y-Y-O-U-D-O. My website is paulderu.com. You can find my portfolio and you know, projects there.
0: Excellent. Well, I will, I will definitely put all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming on. I'm so glad we got to have this chat.
1: Absolutely, and um, I definitely plan on uh, sharing of uh, my process during the residency. And um, uh, I've been loving using my stories to give little uh, windows into everything from my experiments steel facing stuff and um, uh, other areas that I've been doing research into. So. Um, So definitely stay tuned for updates there.
0: Wonderful. Well, we will definitely be in touch. So thank you again.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Bye. Ciao. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks time when my guest will be Ben Moinos. We talk about his incredible undertaking of creating six woodcuts, eight feet high by four feet wide, all which chronicle his family's history of immigrating to the United States from Mexico, beginning with his grandfather all the way through to Ben's own two daughters. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Powshack, and music, new remastered, sexed-up, and incredible music by Joshua Weber. You're the very best, Weber! I'll see you in two weeks.